You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. point of that state a couple weeks ago. Um, and on the plane, if you've flown, you know this to be true, that as soon as the, the plane is on the tarmac or on the runway getting ready to take off, you hear the stewardess come on the intercom and basically say, it is now time to silence your phones, right? So you put it in airplane mode or turn it off or whatever. And uh, during the flight, you're pretty much um, out of any kind of signal, and then the flight, the plane lands, and in Billings, Montana, it's interesting because the airport is actually on a plateau about 500 feet above the city. And so you come into this thing, and it's like, whoa, this is interesting because there's a cliff right to our right next to the runway, and we are landing, and it's sort of like you're in the middle of nowhere, Billings, Montana. So the stewardess comes on the intercom, and she says these famous words, it is now safe to use your cell phones. And immediately, you know what everybody does. They pull out their phones, and... Half of them have already done that, but they've turned them back on. And as I did so, I was looking at mine, and up in the top left corner, you see this little term, searching. Your phone is searching for a signal, right? And what's interesting is, as your phone is searching for a signal, it is looking for a network. It's looking for a network to connect with. And when it does, a technological miracle takes place. The phone's capabilities are now empowered to be and do everything that it was designed to be and do, right? Through that connection, all the resources from the digital world are now suddenly available and ready to help you with what you need. You and I are a lot like that. God made us with a unique chip in our soul that searches for a connection to the right network, one that will provide us with the information, with the love, with the support, and with the encouragement that we need to experience this life the way God intended it. I love the scripture in Mark 12, where Jesus says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. There's two audiences there. It's loving God and loving people. If we can get that right, you get life right. When we talk about connection, we're talking about pursuing God and pursuing community, loving your neighbor and being invested in life-giving relationships. Dr. Henry Cloud has written extensively about this, and he identifies four different types of connections um, that relates to the relationships in our lives. He calls it the four corners of connection. If you have a bulletin insert this morning, you're welcome to follow along and jot some notes. But figuring out where you stand in regard to the various relationships in your life is one of the most important things we can do. Of the four, three of them will diminish the health of your soul. Only one will help it thrive. So it's important for us to understand what is that one, right? So let's dive in. Corner one. Corner one he calls no connection. No connection is described as people who are either living in isolation from other people or their relationships are emotionally disconnected. Instead of giving and receiving love, disconnection lacks something in either the giving or the receiving side. You ever been there? 
Corner one relationships reflect somebody who is emotionally absent, somebody who is unable or unwilling to engage in meaningful interaction with somebody. In 1994, just before Laura and I got married, my grandmother passed away. My grandma lived in Audubon, Iowa. Her whole life, she never drove, never had a driver's license. She walked everywhere. And she would walk a mile and a half to the grocery store, push in her little cart, buy groceries, walk back. And that was just the way my grandma worked. I love my grandma, She's a bigger lady. She was known for a ginormous mole on her chin. And as grandkids, we just stared at that thing. Felt like it got bigger every time we saw her. My grandma passed away, and on a Friday night, we were at the funeral home for a visitation. And the place was full. The room that we were in was packed with other ladies that she had gone to church with and men and women in the community that just knew about Grandma Marie Christensen. And uh, it was just a really fun celebration of a life. About partway through, I kind of walked out, went to the restroom, was coming back, and I happened to notice to the right of our room was another room. And there was another visitation taking place. Except in this room, it was really unique because there was simply a pine wooden box sitting on a stand with absolutely no people in the room. The visitation was actually happening at the same time and nobody was there. The guy's name was Harold, and uh, Harold was a bit of a hermit. He passed away also in his 80s, and he lived out in the country in this tiny little house, and he just never connected with anybody. People knew of him, but they didn't know him. And I remember looking in that room, and then the funeral home director actually came in and told me a little bit about the story and basically, the next day, there was going to be a funeral in which he was going to be the only person there. And I'll never forget that. And it just was this picture of everything that life shouldn't be. Now, being in corner one doesn't mean that you're a hermit like Harold. It doesn't mean that you're not a people person. Being in corner one doesn't even mean that you're not actively helping people. It just means you're disconnected from meaningful two-way engagement. You're lacking the ability to both give and receive love. So you make relationships oftentimes one-sided, usually with the input coming from you, right? This is common, especially for high-performing people, because their experience and their ability teaches them to be self-sufficient. They can do things on their own. They don't need others. Corner one can be deceptively dangerous, especially for leaders, where it can be very lonely. Scripture reminds us that it was never a good idea for a man or a woman to be alone. Corner one people must work hard to find a network where they can be honest and vulnerable and receive energy and support from others. They need life-giving people. That's corner one. Corner two... Dr. Henry Cloud defines as a bad connection. People who find themselves in this corner accept that a bad connection is better than no connection at all. A bad connection is a preoccupation or a pull toward a person who is the effect of making you feel bad or not good enough in some way. 
They make you feel inferior or defective. You ever have corner two people in your life? I remember watching this with one of our former YFC kids when I was leading the high school ministry. And I just remember watching him over and over again trying to gain the attention and approval of his dad. His dad was kind of critical and wanted him to be a certain way, and this was a kid that was just wired not that way. He wasn't a great athlete. He wasn't a great people, outgoing kind of person. And over and over in small group, he would talk about just his desire to connect with his dad, but every time it would fall short. He had a bad connection with the man in his life that mattered most. Unfortunately, bad connections are a universal experience for all of us. All of us can think of a teacher with unrealistic expectations, or perhaps a coach who is a screamer, or maybe a supervisor who just doesn't seem to care, or a parent who is overbearing. These create bad connections, and many times they follow us into our adulthood. Bad connections at home are the most damaging. Parents who consistently model bad connection behavior can literally destroy a child's life. One of our YFC sites takes place down in Eldora at the Boys State Training School. And Chad is our chaplain. He's our juvenile justice director. And in this picture, he's on the top left. He's just doing a phenomenal job. We have about 260 different boys from across the state who are sent to the training school as a worst offender in the adolescent boys' world. And Chad would tell you that almost 100% of them have either a bad connection or no connection with one or both of their parents. The absence, the abuse, or the lack of love has created a void in their soul that has resulted in destructive choices and behavior that has ultimately led them to this place. These are not bad kids. I hang out with them on a pretty regular basis. They're just normal kids, but they're lost, and they're empty, and they're desperately lacking what that signal was intended to connect with, a healthy, life-giving relationship. Corner two connections are much like a boxer who's on his heels, fending off punches, because that's what bad connections do. They make us feel defensive, and they put us on the ropes, and too often, they knock us out. Nobody wants to be isolated, alone, or inadequate. So eventually, our connection chip is going to find something to make us feel good, right? Which leads us to corner three. Corner three is a pseudo-good connection. What do we mean by that? Well, where a corner two makes you feel bad, in this corner, people gravitate toward a connection that makes them feel good, even if it's deceptive or temporary. This can take many forms across a broad spectrum. It includes being content with surface relationships, where we safely keep our masks on, and we don't let people really know who we are or how we're doing. It includes trying to impress people in order to fit in or be accepted or gain approval. We see this with teenagers all the time. It includes using status or money or possessions to try to influence relationships. It includes sometimes immorality, affairs, addictions, 
or other escape behaviors that address the need to feel good in the moment. One of the fascinating influences on corner three relationships is actually technology. Now, I am not very good at social media, and our staff at YFC will just grin and attest to that. Right, Paul? But I am amazed by what it allows us to do. And I'm not at all judging social media or anything else. I'm actually um, a fan when it's handled right. But it's interesting because technology has also had an interesting effect when it comes to pseudo-good connection. The first thing that we see this happening is just the fact that the term friend has evolved. A friend has traditionally meant somebody that you spend time with doing life together. Now, a friend can be somebody that you've never met in person that follows you on Facebook. The average American Facebook user has 328 friends. And yet those same people on average will admit that they really only have two close friends. For men, it's 0.8, which makes me laugh because that's the guy that's about this tall, I think, <laughs> right? Before social media, that average would have been six. One out of four Americans, 25%, they have no say that they have no close friends at all. So there is a tension, and as the trend of online activity continues to increase, the experience of personal life-giving friendships continues to decline. The second way that technology promotes pseudo-good relationships is that we're becoming addicted to immediate affirmation. Whenever you need some feedback, all you need to do is post a thought or a picture or an article and wait for the likes to come in, right? You can take a selfie and instantly receive a reaction. And for some people, this becomes addicting. Scientists say that it releases a chemical in our brain called dopamine, which is that feeling of euphoria in the moment that can literally become addicting. Immediate affirmation meets a short-term craving, but it defers a longer-term need. In fact, sociologists have coined a new term that they call deferred loneliness. We feel lonely, so we post something. We get immediate feedback, and it meets a short-term need, but we defer our longing for intimacy into the future. And the loneliness we feel gets deferred to a later time. We've created an entire culture that is living for likes, but longing for love. So whether it's through personal influence or technology, corner three relationships may make us feel good in the moment, but they'll never fulfill our longing for what our soul really craves. Before we look at what that is, I want to just point out how these three corners interact with each other. Because it's an interesting dynamic that, if nothing else, this puts language to a common experience that all of us have. This is called the triangle trap. And as you look at the diagram, you see the three corners we've just talked about interacting in a way that's not necessarily healthy, but it's fairly common. So let's just say we start in corner one, and you're feeling a bit alone and isolated. So you reach out for community, but along the way, you have a bad experience. You go to corner two. It ends up being a corner two connection. It makes you feel rejected or inferior or not good enough. Now you feel bad, so you head to corner three 
where you can escape and find some relief. This short-term fix feels good in the moment, but it doesn't last. So you head back to what's familiar, which is corner two, a bad relationship. Now you're alone again. After having a bad experience, you want to jump back to corner one because you're just fed up and tired with it. And now you're alone again, and the cycle starts over. This is a triangle that can start in any one of the three corners and go in any direction, and oftentimes it does. And what's really crazy is sometimes it's happening simultaneously with other relationships all at the same time. And it can create a lot of confusion for somebody that's just looking for what their soul really needs. So what is that? What the soul really needs is corner four, true connection. Corner four is all about forming real connections with other people. It's where you can be yourself, the real, authentic you. It's a relationship that engages your heart, your mind, your soul, and your passion. Both parties in a relationship are fully present, and they know each other, and they're known by each other. Masks are removed. Needs can be safely shared. It's safe. Authentic relationships are not just an ideal. They're actually a need for every single one of us, regardless of our age. Paul understood this when he wrote to the Thessalonian church, where he said this, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Isn't that a great picture of the way the body should be working together? True connection relationships. I want to walk through quickly six things that true connection, corner four people, do for us. Number one is they foster trust. Trust is defined as confident expectation. If you want a real simple definition of trust, it's when you have confident expectation that somebody's going to be and do who they say they are and what they say they're going to do. Confident expectation. So we invest our time, our energy, our resources in people that we are com- because we are confident that, they can, that that will lead to good outcomes, right? There's some questions that all of us silently ask when it comes to the question of, can I trust you? Here's what these questions are. Number one, do you understand me? It's a question of understanding. Do you know and understand me? Second question we all ask, do you want what's best for me? That's a question of motive. Third question we all ask, will you be there for me? That's a question of commitment. Fourth question we all ask, will you do the right thing? That's a character question. And the fifth question that we all ask when it comes to trust, can you deliver? That's a capacity question. And we all have these silent questions when it comes to trust. We don't even know about these sometimes, but it puts words to it. Corner four connections foster trust. Secondly, they impart energy into you. Studies show that authentic relationships not only enhance our mental functioning, but they actually give us life, which affects our capacity to do things at a higher level. When you add learning and mission to an authentic relationship, 
oh my goodness, the life-giving potential goes through the roof. That's why small groups in a faith-based setting are so critical. Because you have mission, you have learning, and you have honest, authentic relationships all trying to do this thing together. And that's where we can really thrive. Third thing, true connections, relationships, increase our self-control. We tend to think of self-control as completely dependent on ourselves and what we do. But the truth is, self-control, it's not only a fruit of the Spirit, but it's heavily influenced by the most significant people in our lives. The people that support us and hold us accountable affect directly our self-control. Corner four people do that. Number four, true connection relationships make failure safe. All of us fail. And that failure can cause us to struggle with feelings of inadequacy, judgment, guilt, shame, the whole list. Makes us feel like we're the only one. Corner four relationships have the power to help us experience failure as an opportunity for improvement and a way to grow in grace. When you've screwed up, doesn't it feel good to sit down with somebody that you trust and hear them say, well, we've all been there. Corner four relationships make failure safe. Number five, corner four relationships unite instead of divide. They unite instead of divide. They guard against one of the most divisive relational practices called triangulation. Triangulation is this. Person A has an issue with person B. But instead of person A going to person B and addressing the issue, they go to person C. And they unload all the garbage with person C, who is now involved in this triangle that is not healthy. Because not only are they hearing things that's one-sided, but they are put in an impossible place to know what to do with person B, right? This is a big deal in how it affects teams because it can destroy a team. It can destroy a family. And it can destroy a church. This is a big deal. And Scripture addresses it in Titus where it says this, if people are causing divisions among you, Give a first and a second warning, and after that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. Now, let me just say that you have to use extreme wisdom in how this is applied. But it is critical that this idea of unifying versus dividing is a big deal in Jesus' eyes. And he invites us into this whole idea of the body being one unit focused on mission, focused on him, advancing his cause. True connection people do that. They unite instead of divide. And the sixth thing is, true connection relationships move you uphill. I like this one, because a lot of life is going uphill, it seems like. The second law of thermodynamics, so we're going to talk science for a second. Second law of thermodynamics states that in any system, there is a limited amount of energy and over time, that energy becomes less useful and more chaotic. You remember being taught that? That's why your car rusts. That's why your house deteriorates. That's why your body slowly decays, right? 
The decay of order and energy is called entropy. The same is true of human performance. And to break the cycle of decline, we need two ingredients. We need new sources of energy and new sources of intelligence. We need something outside ourselves to get us to where we need to go. And you can obviously see why faith is so critical to this because that accomplishes both. New sources of energy, the Holy Spirit, new sources of intelligence, the wisdom and knowledge of God. He can help us to continue to grow. Corner four people possess specific ingredients to help us move uphill. They spot the hidden potential inside each of us that we don't always see. They stretch us in ways that cause us to grow without breaking us. They push us upwards to reach our full potential. So you don't have to live long enough to realize that life is full of challenges. And each season has its own ups and downs. I like to kind of view these as mountains. And as you recall, a couple weeks ago, we talked about a mountain. I'm going to close with another mountain story. I want to show you a picture of a big mountain. This is Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier is in the state of Washington. Anybody ever been out there and seen it? The first thing you'll notice about Mount Rainier is it's huge. It just is a massive chunk of land that pops up from sea level, basically. And so this is a big mountain. There are 27 glaciers on this peak. It's considered the most difficult endurance climb in the lower 48 states. It takes 18 miles round trip to get to the top and back with 9,000 feet elevation gain, so almost two miles straight up. It's an active volcano with steam vents on top. And those steam vents really smell, sulfuric acid type smell. It's a popular training site for Mount Everest. It creates its own weather. In fact, the next picture shows you kind of an example. Um, when hot air off of the ocean hits the side of Mount Rainier, the hot air moves upwards and creates these spiral clouds called lenticular clouds. These things are spinning at about 60 to 80 miles an hour. If you're a pilot, you want to avoid this at all costs. Funny trivia story, there was a Cessna plane that got caught in one of these years back and had to crash land into the crater of Mount Rainier. The pilot survived, but the plane is still there. And it is sunk now down into the snow-capped crater. So someday, if Mount Rainier ever erupts, there's a little Cessna plane that's going to come flying out of the mountain. <laughs> Mount Rainier averages 680 inches of snow every year. That's 56 feet. A few years back, Dr. Steve Allgood and I had the opportunity to attempt to climb this. That year, they got a record 900 inches of snow, 75 feet of snow. We climbed it the third week of June, and in the parking lot down on the bottom, there was still 40 feet of snow on the ground. It's crazy. The number one rule for climbing Mount Rainier is this. Do not climb alone. Do not climb alone. Every year, the mountain claims lives, oftentimes because of guys or gals who get separated from their group. Mount Rainier is full of crevasses. And by the way, this is a picture of a sunset. And this picture was taken, I believe, about 90 miles away from the mountain. So imagine the shadow that that's casting. <laughs> that's a long ways. So a few years ago, Steve and I climbed it. 
And uh, the next picture shows um, the first day that we got out there. We'll go to the next slide. We went to a mountaineering school. And I want to just pause here, because when you climb this, one of the biggest threats is these things called crevasses. A crevasse is where the snow separates from the top down, and it creates these big openings on the mountain. If you are not roped up, or if you are not properly in a group, you can slide into these things and lose your life. There's actually bodies on the mountain they've never been able to recover. The way to protect against this is to rope up with other climbers in your group. Usually it's three or four. And so when we had the opportunity to do this, we went to a mountaineering school where they taught us how to basically rope up and work together as a team to go uphill to get to the top. Part of the training involved how to rope up. Part of it involved how to travel as a team, how to hold your rope so it's taut enough as you're kind of going through the mountain, how to breathe properly, how to self-arrest. So this next picture shows how to self-arrest with your ice axe so if somebody falls, you become their break. And the guides also taught us the critical importance of encouraging each other as we went. The guys on my rope line that day, and if you go back a slide, the guy on the far right was our lead guide. His name is Seth Waterfall. What a classic name for a mountain guide, right? He's a former Olympic bicyclist. He got into mountaineering and is just a world-class elite athlete. He has summited Mount Everest multiple times, taken people up, and the guy is just a machine. He, we were privileged that Steve and I had him as our lead guide on our rope line. He knew the mountain like the back of his hands. We were his 96th summit. And he's just this casual dude that just kind of goes with the flow, and yet inside he knows exactly what to do in any situation on a mountain like that. Having a guide leading you in life is so critical, especially who's leading your rope line. We have the privilege as Christians of having Jesus be our lead guide. But we also have the opportunity to put people on our rope line that not only can we do life with, but they can do life with us. And that's what this is all about today. So as Steve and I left base camp, we'll flip a few slides forward. This is a picture, keep moving forward. This is a picture of what it looked like at midnight on that June evening as we went to summit. Our rope guide is actually the front of that group, the bottom group there. And we climbed through the night. And all you could hear was the clanking of ice axes, the brussel of snow, the thunder of avalanches from across the other side of the mountain that was happening. It sounded like a war zone at times. It was just really freaky. And yet we had our guide. And we're in this together. And we're encouraging each other. The guys on my rope line did what true connection corner four people do. They fostered trust. They imparted energy. They increased my self-control. They made failure safe. They united instead of divided. And they inspired me to move uphill, step by step. Scripture says this, two are better than one. Flip the slide to the next for if one falls down, his friend can help him up. I love that. 
Because not only is that true on a mountain, but that's true in life, right? The Christian life was never intended to be lived in isolation. We were created with this signal inside our soul that searches for a healthy relational network to encourage, to build up, to spur each other on. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us encourage one another. So we have four corners. One of those four is going to make our souls thrive. We're going to push toward corner four. But the other three corners, God doesn't leave us to just not tend to those as well. Scripture directs us how to free ourselves from the damaging effect of bad relationships. All of us have been wronged and mistreated and hurt, some of us extremely deeply. It's not a topic to take lightly. There's legitimate pain and heartache around this. But at the same time, I think sometimes we underestimate the cost of what relational strife does to our souls. These conflicts consume energy in ways we don't even know. They steal our joy, our peace, and they hang over us like a dark cloud. No one understood this better than Jesus. While he hung on the cross in front of his accusers, he said 10 words that rocked the world. You know what they are? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is the new standard for a healthy soul. Paul continues this teaching in Colossians when he says this, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. For some of us, perhaps, that's the message for today. That we need to make room for forgiveness and go make things right with that person who's wronged us. Perhaps we need to forgive once and for all, and regardless of whether they accept it or forgive back, that doesn't matter. What matters is my soul is liberated when I show grace and forgiveness. So after 20 hours of continuous climbing, Steve Allgood and I successfully reached the summit of Mount Rainier. And this was the picture. This looks like such a calm, peaceful shot. The reality was the wind was blowing at gusts of 55 miles an hour. It's five degrees. We were freezing. There's no place to hide. And we were tired. And then, oh, by the way, you're only halfway done. The guide said going up is optional. Going down is mandatory, right? <laughs> so we literally were up there for about five minutes. Our guide took this picture, and then he said, get your backpacks. We're going down. It's not safe. In that life, uphill, challenge, difficulty, you get to where you're going, and it's short-lived, and now you've got to press on more. That's a picture of life. Let's do it together, because we need each other. What I did not realize when this picture was taken, six months later, I'd be standing shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with Steve at the cemetery where we buried his wife. That became a new mountain, and we're doing it together. 
So let me just say this as we close. Today, we're better together. Today, we're better together because our souls were not made to go it alone. Your soul, my soul, craves true corner four connection. And oftentimes, for crazy reasons, we resist it. I don't know why I resist it. Perhaps it's because I know it takes time. It takes courage. It takes commitment. It takes effort. But as I've invested in key people in my own life and they've invested back in me, there is nothing more rewarding than doing life together with life-giving people. So I challenge us as we close. The only place our soul is going to thrive is corner four. It needs God and it needs people. And as we close, whatever it takes, I urge us to move in that direction, to deal with the other three corners that may have caused pain, but to move toward corner four and let God use you to be a life-giving presence with somebody and ask God to provide life-giving people back for you. That is where our souls will thrive. So as we close, I close with a question. In this season of your life, who needs to be on your rope line? Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for the simplicity of how you've made us to love you and to love people. And when we get that right, our souls come alive with joy. And I just pray today for this church, this body of people, both individually and collectively, that we would lean into you first, and then we would lean into the people you put in our lives second, and that we would just experience the life and the fullness that you intend for each of us. Give us courage to forgive where we need to, and give us courage to invest where we need to. And we will give you the glory and the honor. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.